So today we are going to talk about the end of the world. That's our topic for today, the end of the world. And when I say the end of the world, what comes to mind? If you're like me and you think of some epic apocalyptic movies, uh, maybe you think of Deep Impact, that uh, mid-90s movie where Morgan Freeman announces, President Morgan Freeman, excuse me, announces to the world that these two giant asteroids are going to come and take out the earth. Or maybe you think of uh, a great alien invasion like Independence Day or War of the World. Uh, Maybe, maybe the world's going to be taken out by a huge, large-scale, epic epidemic that turns people into zombies. (laughs) That'd be kind of cool. Now, for some reason... For some reason, our culture has become increasingly fascinated by the end of the world. That's why we have all these movies, we have all these stories, but that's, that's what they are. They're just stories, they're just myths. Now, as Christians, we know that the world is going to end, but it's a different ending that, than perhaps we would have ever imagined. It's a different ending than even Hollywood could imagine. The world is going to end with a lamb. The world is going to end with a lamb. From Revelations chapter 6, listen to these words. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The world is going to end with Jesus, the Lamb. And this time, this time, he's not coming back to a manger. He's not coming back as an unknown carpenter from Nazareth. He's not going to be on his way to a cross this time. This time, he's coming back with a sword in his hand. He's going to be on a horse. He's going to be amidst a great, vast army, and he's coming back to judge the world. This is how the, end, this is how the world's going to end. Jesus as judge. Now, I just read a portion of Revelation chapter 6. It's not just in the New Testament that we get to know the end of the world. It's also in the Old Testament. So if you want to turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 1, it's page... Uh, 933 in your pew Bible, Zephaniah chapter 1, 933 in your pew Bible. And as we will see from this chapter, the end of the world is coming, and it is pretty intense. So I'm going to read to start us off just the first three verses, Zephaniah chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord 
that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, three times he says to start off Zephaniah chapter 1, I will sweep away. I will sweep away, which shows the extent of this judgment. Now, notice the object of God's wrath here. There's several objects, men, animals, birds of the air, fish of the sea. Now, this language sounds very familiar to us. It it should remind us of language from the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. It's almost like God is saying, when I'm coming with my wrath, I'm going to reverse all that I did at the beginning of time. I'm going to undo creation. And that includes humanity. And there is no recovery from this judgment. This is not like Chumbawamba. I get knocked down, I get up again. This is is you get knocked down, you are down. That's the kind of wrath that is coming. There is no recovery here. Now, if we're honest this morning, the last thing, perhaps, that we think about in any given day is that Jesus is going to come back and sweep away everything. We really don't think about this that often. What's on our minds? On our minds, maybe this week, is the Zimmerman case. Okay, that's understandable but Jesus is going to come back and judge the world. What's on our minds is the annoying guy who cut us off on the highway. Okay, that's fine. But Jesus is going to come back and judge the world. We get on our soapboxes. Maybe it's gun control or maybe it's sex trafficking. Maybe it's abortion. All sorts of soapboxes all of us have. I understand. But Jesus is going to come back to judge the world. What would our lives look like? What would our lives look like if we really believed this? What would our lives look like if we truly believed this truth? Would it look like how we're living right now? I wonder. There's a chasm between the truth that the world is going to end with judgment and what occurs often in our everyday lives and experiences. And by God's grace, what I want to do with the the time we have remaining this morning is to build a bridge in that chasm, okay? So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we have before us right now a very heavy passage. But Father, we want to taste and see that you are good even in this passage. So we pray that you would come, come upon us, that you would fill all of us with your spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verses 4 through 18. 4 through 18. God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, 
and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also who swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord and and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord, uh, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered and their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. This is like a ten tamale kind of uh, passage. It is really intense. Now, as we move through this text, we're going to be zooming in and zooming out. We're going to be looking at the big picture about the end of the world, but we're also going to zoom in and look at the history of Judah and, and see what that tells us about the end of the world. And I want to pull out of this chapter two lessons, two lessons about how God will end this world. Here is the first lesson. The first lesson is the world will end with God judging the complacent and the idolatrous. The world will end by, with God judging the complacent and the idolatrous. Now we started in verse 2 and 3 with God's wrath against the whole world. And now in verses 4 through 13, we will see that wrath, that wrath, that specific wrath is going to be um, manifested in Judah. It's almost like God is holding up Judah as exhibit A. It's, it's like what God does with Judah within history is a small-scale version of what God will do with the rest of the world at the end of history. So that's why we're going to be looking at Judah. Now, to explore this section, I want to ask a couple questions. Probably questions that are burning in our minds, too, after we read this passage. The first question is, why is God judging Judah so harshly? Why is he so upset? And the second question is, what does this judgment look like? 
Okay, so question number one, why is God so upset with Judah? Well, the simple answer, as you probably would have guessed, is sin. Sin. Sin plagued and corrupted Judah, much like sin plagues and corrupts us today. And God is unflinching in his holiness. He is unflinching in his holiness. And and God's world, God's universe is entirely fair. Which means that he is keeping a record of all the wrongs that have been done. All of the wrongs that have been done against him. And he's going to set the record straight at the end of time. Justice will be served. Now, to understand Judah's particular sins, we need to dive into their history just a little bit. So when Zephaniah wrote this prophecy, when he, when he said these words, Josiah was the king. We read that in verse 1. Now, the two kings that came before Josiah, they were awful kings. They were terrible, terrible kings. And they led Judah into a time where they rejected God, and they, they claimed these idols, these pagan idols, as their own. They started worshiping idols. And then Josiah comes on the scene, and he starts to clean up things a little bit. King Josiah was a good king. He loved God. And uh, so he led Judah through this massive reform, getting rid of these idols and getting back to God. And Zephaniah was a prophet that was a contemporary of Judah, or excuse me, of Josiah. And what Zephaniah was trying to do is he was trying to support Josiah's reforms. He was trying to make sure that Judah would repent. Now take a look again at this section, verses 4 and 5. Look at the second sentence in verse 4. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal. Baal is a Assyrian god. The names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host. So apparently they were you know, practicing some sort of astrology. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Mola. This is interesting. So some of these folks are swearing to God. Some of these folks are swearing to Molech, which is another Assyrian god. So what we see here is the the full spectrum of spiritual apostasy. On one hand, we see uh, a bunch of people that are totally rejecting God, totally rejecting the true God. But then we see on the other end of the spectrum, we see some folks that are mixing pagan worship with real worship of the true God. But the point here is very clear. God is upset that Judah is worshiping idols. Idol worship began in the Garden of Eden. It began with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve worshipped at the altar of self, didn't they? Isn't that what they did? They worshipped at the altar of self. They, They rejected God, they rejected his worship, and they did their own thing. They ended up worshiping themselves. Idol worship continues today as we bow down to various altars. Now, the stuff that we worship, they're not handcrafted stone images. It's not golden calves that we worship. We worship other sorts of things. What kinds of things do we worship today? We worship at the altar of pleasure. We worship at the altar of pleasure. How many decisions in a given day do we make that prioritize our own convenience and our own pleasure and our own comfort over everything else? We worship at the altar of career. 
We worship at the altar of money and possessions. We worship at the altar of self-esteem and self-realization. We worship at the altar of professional sports. No, New Englanders don't worship at the altar of professional sports. We clear out our schedules, we paint our chests, we pay obscene amounts of money to get tickets, and then we go bananas when we're at these games or in our homes, right? We do silly, obnoxious, undignified things with our bodies when we're watching these games. But then we come here on Sunday morning, and we are so shy to clap our hands or raise our hands in worship to the God of the universe. What are we truly worshiping? Our actions and our longings and our decisions and even our bodies, they tell us what we're truly worshiping, much more than what we may mentally assent to on a Sunday morning. And here's the thing. God's wrath is coming against all people who worship idols. But idolatry for Judah was only the beginning of their issues. Look at verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Judah struggled with complacency which is not surprising. We often struggle with spiritual complacency. Now, the thing is, years back, the northern kingdom of Israel, they were taken, they were judged by God too. They were taken by the Assyrian Empire. They came in years back and they took them out. But the Assyrian Empire, when this was spoken, this prophecy was spoken, the Assyrian Empire was in decline. And so Judah, the southern kingdom, they were looking around, they're thinking, gee whiz, we're, we're all set We're doing great. We're worshiping our idols. The Assyrian Empire, they're no threat to us. There's nobody that's a threat to us. And God, where is God? He's not going to bless us. He's not going to curse us. He is totally disengaged from our situation. We are all set. How many people in culture today adopt this view of God? Now we'll worship our idols, our cultural idols over here. Yeah, we'll go to Sunday church now and then, or maybe even every Sunday. But man, Monday through Saturday, we are worshiping at the altar of the world. Where is God? He's not involved in our lives. He's inactive. He's detached. He's not going to bless us. He's not going to curse us. And so we are just fine doing what we're doing. Zephaniah chapter 1 says, not for long. Now notice that the complacent in verse 12 are described as wine left on its dregs. Now we're good Baptists, so none of us drink alcohol here. I know. But let's just say we do. And if we do, then we would know that wine left undisturbed for a period of time, it's going to collect sediments on the top. And that's what Judah was like. They were like gross wine. Inactive wine, undisturbed wine. They were spiritually useless. They were spiritually uh, apathetic towards God. 
For 60 years, they were riding the fence with God, and God said, enough. And what did he do? He sent the nation of Babylon, years after Zephaniah spoke these words, he sent the nation of Babylon to come and to judge and enslave Judah. God had had enough, and he took them out through Babylon. You see, God proved that he is very much active in human history. God has had enough with our idolatry and our complacency as well. He has had enough with our excuses. He has had enough with our lukewarmness. And one day, just like Babylon surprised Judah, God is going to surprise us with his son who's going to come back and judge the world. Sometimes I worry about the church in America. Are we really following God? Are we really following God? Are we really turning from our idols, turning from our sins and crying out to God for mercy? Is this the heart cry of the church in America? Are we fooling ourselves into thinking that by just sitting in these pews, perhaps week in and week out, that we're all set? Judah's problem was idolatry and complacency, and God was coming after them for it. Now, what exactly does this wrath look like? What does this wrath look like? Look at verse 7. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. And this day is mentioned several times in our passage. Look at verse 8. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish Verse 9, on that day I will punish. Verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near and near and quickly coming. Verse 15, that day will be a day of wrath. The day of the Lord. The first time we heard day of the Lord, remember Jeremy preached, Joel, Joel, I think it was chapter 1. Let me just remind you what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord is a time period within human history when God will visit his people as well as the world with judgment and salvation. That's what the day of the Lord is. Notice also the strong descriptions of the future day of the Lord in verses 15 through 17. Let me read this again. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people. The day of the Lord is going to be rather intense. The punishment that people will endure. I want you to hear this very clearly. The punishment that people will endure on the day of the Lord, the future day of the Lord, is going to involve physical and emotional turmoil. It's going to involve unimaginable physical and emotional turmoil. Let's let that sink in for just a moment. Unimaginable physical, and emotional pain. No one wants to think about this. 
None of us want to think about this. This is crazy stuff. This is scary stuff. This is awful stuff. We, we want to avoid these parts of the Bible, right? That's how I felt when I first read this section when it was assigned to me. I would rather go to chapter 3. That's a little bit more fun. But here it is. It's in the Bible. It's in our Bibles. We'd rather jump to the New Testament and talk about God's love all day long. But here it is in our Bibles. We'd rather enjoy our, our summer vacations. You know, we, we'd rather enjoy wiggling our toes in the sand and sipping on margaritas. Let's forget about judgment. But at what cost? At what cost? What if we found out that Jesus was coming back in 24 hours? If I can guarantee to you Jesus is coming back, you've got 24 hours. What would you do? What would you do? Well, I think the first thing you would do is make sure that you are right with God, right? If you're not a Christian here, you, wow, I need to get to know this Jesus guy who's going to come back and judge the world. I need to get to know him, and I need to figure out how I can be right with him. Okay, the second thing I think you would do and I would do is we would want to help other people become right with this Jesus, right? And so we go to family and friends and neighbors and coworkers and, and, and people around us, and we would try to convince them, listen, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to come back and judge. You need to be right with Jesus. Now, what if I told you that when I heard this good news, I decided to go upstairs in the parsonage and take a nap? And I told you, wake me up when Jesus comes back. I'd be totally insane. Who would do that? Some of us this morning are sleeping to the reality that Jesus are coming back. And I believe that through this passage this morning, that God wants to say to us, wake up. He's coming back. And he's coming back to judge. One pastor, as he was reflecting on this passage, he said these words. He said, The great causes of God and humanity are not always defeated by the hot assaults of the devil. They are often defeated by the slow, crushing, glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of indifferent nobodies. God's causes aren't always destroyed by being blown up. Sometimes they are just being sat upon. Do you hear that message? Are we missing some of God's blessings as God's people, even now because we're sitting on our hands in complacency? We're ignoring the coming wrath? Are we missing out on evangelistic fruit, the fruit that comes from going to the hard places for God? Because we are sitting on our hands in apathy. Friends, the world is going to end with God judging the idolatrous and the complacent and all sinful people. Let's let this reality cause us to cry out to God for mercy for ourselves, but also for other people. Cause us to proclaim the gospel boldly. Cause us to do hard things for God, for the glory of God, and for the good of spiritually dead people in our midst. I can think of specific people, and I know you can too, specific family, specific friends, Specific family members in my life 
who are worshiping cultural idols. I can think of specific family and friends, close friends, that are spiritually nonchalant. And they are going to receive everything that we read in Zephaniah chapter 1. And it breaks our hearts. Let's not sit on this stuff. So the world is going to end with God's sweeping wrath against the idolatrous and the complacent. That's what we've seen so far. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have? What will keep us safe when the storm of God's wrath comes our way? Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You can all take a nice sigh of relief, moving into good news, finally. Gather together. Gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord. All you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. There is hope for us. Zephaniah holds out that hope to Judah, and God this morning is holding out hope to all of us here. There is hope for those who, according to verse 1, gather together who, according to verse 3, seek God, seek righteousness, seek humility. Here's our second lesson. I want you to hear this very clearly. The world will end with God sheltering the repentance from judgment. The world will end with God sheltering the repentance from judgment. We see here a picture of those who repent. It's a picture of people who cry out, who cry out to God in desperation. It's a picture of people who acknowledge their sin, who don't hide their sin. They acknowledge their sin, their junk, their their addictions, their idols. They bring it before God and say, this is who I am, God. It's a picture of people who are humble before God, who have supple and tender hearts. There is no room for the I'm all set attitude in Zephaniah 2. What happens if we repent? Look at verse 3, second part. Perhaps, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Now, from the vantage point of the New Testament, which is where we stand from, we can take these words one step further. We have a shelter that will protect us from the day of the Lord's anger. It's a shelter that God himself has built for us, and it's Jesus. Jesus is our only shelter. Jesus is our only shelter from God's coming judgment. There is no other shelter. We can't construct a shelter with our good deeds. We can't construct a a shelter with our generosity or our spirituality or our church attendance. We must find shelter in Jesus alone, which means repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There's people here today 
who have not done that, I want to plead with you. You heard what we said about Zephaniah chapter 1. This is true. It's coming. There is no escaping this except through Jesus. So would you cast yourself on Christ this morning and find shelter in him? Jesus is our only shelter. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. For Christians, there is no perhaps there. For Christians, there is a rock-solid promise. Jesus will shelter us from his wrath. Jesus will shield us and absorb all of the blows that we deserve from that storm that's coming. Jesus will protect us by putting himself in the storm on our behalf. This shelter is secure. We just need to get underneath it. So how are you going to experience God at the end of time? Are you going to experience him as the merciless judge? Or are you going to experience him as the merciful savior? Are you going to meet him for the first time by swallowing his wrath that he has doled up for you? Are you going to meet him through Jesus, who is your shelter? I want to take one more step before we wrap up here. Notice in verse 1 that part of Zephaniah's exhortation is to gather together, to gather together. The picture here is not of a bunch of you know, Jewish individuals scattered across Judah that are getting in their prayer closets and praying by themselves and repenting and seeking God. It certainly includes that, but it's not just that. The picture here is of a people gathered together in synagogues, gathered together in the Jewish temple, all repenting and seeking God together. You see, this is corporate seeking. This is corporate lamenting over sin. This is corporate seeking after humility. This is a corporate experience of God as shelter. You see, SSBC, we are not a church because we have this beautiful sanctuary, because we're part of the Baptist denomination, or because we, um, you know, we have great programs. We are a church because of our identity. Our very identity is wrapped up in gathering and seeking and repenting. This is who we are. This is what we do when we come together. Every time we gather, we remind ourselves of what is coming our way, God's judgment. And then we humble ourselves and we cry out to mercy, for mercy together. And we find that mercy and we experience that shelter in Christ alone. There is no other shelter from this storm. Would you repent? Would you cry out to God for mercy if you haven't already? Let's pray. Father, we read this passage and we are, um, our hearts are heavy. Our hearts are very heavy. Father, as we think about these things, we don't often think about, Father, would you uh, help us and encourage us? Father, we do acknowledge that we're idol worshipers and we are spiritually complacent. We acknowledge that we have forgotten that Jesus will return as judge. Father, forgive us for our sins. We cry out to you now for mercy. Would you have mercy on us? Lord, we want to desperately experience the shelter that Jesus provides. 
Help us to live in view of Jesus' future return. Give us passion, Father, for the lost, for those who are spiritually dead in our midst. Father, this morning we, we look forward to finding shelter in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.